Welcome to Oncology Nursing Update, Lymphoma and Multiple Myeloma Edition. This is medical oncologist Dr. Neil Love. I met with Miss Amy Goodrich, and she began by discussing a 66-year-old man from her practice. He was diagnosed in 2006 with his CLL. He got a lot of standard therapies. He got just about everything under the sun. He was 55 at the time, so he got FCR at that time. He relapsed several years later. He got BR. He got idelalisib and rituximab and had colitis, and they did not re-challenge him. He had some GI bleeding as well at that point in time. Then he went on to get obinutuzumab. And when he came to us, he was really sick. He was having fevers. He had huge lymph nodes. His counts were not horrible, but he was just diaphoretic continuously. He was a guy who wasn't going to brew long. He really needed something. And as we went through his records, we realized he had never had mutational testing done. He had never had fish studies done. So he certainly is someone who, when you look at his history probably started out with normal or favorable cytogenetics, and then over time became less and less responsive to therapy, including things that should work with 17P, like the idelalisib, like the ofatumumab. So we, at that time, because he had had this relatively recent history of GI bleeding, his local doctor gave him an abrutinib script, and his wife, who is really very She's a great historian. She really is all over this. She looked at the side effects and said, he's not taking this. It's time for us to really get another opinion. And so they came to Hopkins. And fortunately, at that time, Venetoclax was available. So this was around June of 2016. Correct. And was he working? What was his quality life like? No, he was not working. He had retired by that time. He was a guy who really liked to be outdoors. He was an avid gardener and really had stopped doing everything, literally had stopped doing everything. He was on the sofa all day long. His fatigue was really life-altering. So again, he was somebody who needed treatment. So it took us a little bit to sort him out in terms of getting all these studies done and figuring out that he had a 17P. And so his creatinine clearance was around 30. He had bulky adenopathy. He was sick. So he was someone who we really followed the package insert and admitted him for his 20 milligram dose. You know, venetoclax is, you know, you start, you move the doses up because of the risk for tumor lysis syndrome. So if you look at the package insert, everyone should be monitored for tumor lysis syndrome, but if folks meet certain criteria, you should consider admitting them. And since the drug was really relatively new and this guy was clearly sick and on the older side, we admitted him for his 20 milligram dose and then his 50 milligram escalation. He had no problems with tumor lysis syndrome. He was just in for a couple nights and got out but has remained on the drug. His lymph nodes within a couple months were gone. His symptoms really rapidly improved in terms of his fevers and his continuous state of being diaphoretic and his fatigue. And so for him, the most exciting thing, he was the last time I saw him, which was in the past month, he was planning his garden. He was planning his spring garden. His wife was so happy that he was you know, really feeling well enough to get back to a lot of the things that had fallen off for him in his retirement years. So that's an amazing story. It's a great story. So at this point, does he have any evidence of disease? 
So we have not narrowed him in terms of his scans, which was really what prompted us to treat him. His nodes have almost normalized. So the last time we scanned him, he was in a really good PR. So I want to go back through this man's history because it seems like he's gotten treated with almost everything he used for CLL. And yeah, we absolutely. Sort mm-hmm. of go through it. But I'm curious, how long has it been since he felt this good? Oh, it was really between the bendamustine and the idelalisib, so probably 2012. So maybe five years? Yeah, maybe five years. Wow. Yes. Wow. So he's thrilled. His wife is thrilled. They are very happy people. Wow. What's it like to see him walk into clinic nowadays? Oh, it's fantastic. You know, he was somebody who we were really worried about. And, you know, we were really worried about just getting the oral drug, just obtaining it, which we all know can take some time. And I was really anxious about him during that period that we were going back and forth and just trying to get him the drug. So he was a sick guy who pretty quickly turned around. So, all right, well, let's go back through the various things that he's been treated with. Maybe we'll start with the current one, which is venetoclax. So maybe you can talk a little bit about what you said to him and trying to explain what venetoclax was and what to expect. One other thing I want to ask you, though, do you feel like the venetoclax, or does he feel it's in any way affecting his quality of life, like causing any side effect? Not at all. He has had no nausea. He's had nothing. He's had no bowel changes. He's had no rashes. He really has had no issues. He's had no count, no cytopenias. He did at one point in the past, he was on IVIgG for hypogammaglobulinemia. And it's not really clear to us why that ever stopped once it was started, because that's usually something for patients with CLL once they develop hypogammaglobulinemia. It doesn't typically reverse to the point that you can get people off it for long periods of time. He's had a couple infections recently that are really along the patterns of what he had years ago when he started IVIgG. So we have since sent him to our immunology folks, and they're working him up, and he may get started again. You know, I think the thing for him, he's had so many therapies, and he's definitely somebody who's been around the block. Oh, and he's also a smoker, so uh, you know, that doesn't help his upper respiratory tract wow. much either. He's continued so, to smoke while he's had CLL? Yes, and he's really trying to cut down at times has smoked up to two packs a day, and he's down to about five or six cigarettes a day. So he really has tapered down, but he still is a smoker. Wow, that's interesting. What kind of work did he do in the past? He lives in Pennsylvania. He did road work. Huh. So just to finish out, though, on the venetoclax, I do want to ask you about tumor lysis, mm-hmm. which is the first thing everybody says. But yeah. I also like to verify and go back about the fact that once you get beyond the tumor lysis, how it's tolerated. Because what I've heard is once you sort of solve that problem and they get their response like he does, Mm -hmm. it's a pretty easy therapy. It is. It is. I've had one lady who several months into it developed a rash. Hmm. She had not changed any meds. She had not done anything differently. And I did an exhaustive literature search and I really didn't think it was the venetoclax, but, you know, the fact that nothing else had changed for her. So we reduced it from 400 to 300. The rash improved. And maybe three months later, I went back up to 400 and the rash has not returned. Hmm. So I've had to do a little finessing just once. That's it. Otherwise, people have really tolerated this beautifully. 
And then in terms of the tumor lysis syndrome, as you mentioned, you know, like in the package insert of the drug, there's a very straightforward table, tells you whether they need to go into the hospital. But the bottom line is that precaution, that's mainly until they get their response, right? It's at the 20 and 50 milligram dose that the monitoring is the most intensive and includes potentially inpatient admission. And then as they escalate further, the monitoring tapers off. But we follow that package insert religiously. And when you do that, I'm just kind of curious, have you seen tumor lysis? This man didn't have it. No, this man didn't have it. And honestly, I thought for sure he would, but he didn't. And he was actually the first person at Hopkins that we had ever admitted for venetoclax, which was really quite a learning experience for the inpatient team because they're really not used to admitting people to get oral drugs. But this one is different. And, you know, everybody quickly wrapped their head around it. And it was still a relatively new drug at that point. How high was his white count? His white count was in like the 80,000 range. So not sky high. He was slightly anemic, not transfusion dependent, though, nor platelet transfusion dependent. I think his platelets were around 75 or 80 as well. But I mean, he had a lot of adenopathy. It just shrank right down. Yes. And So basically, what exactly were you doing other than monitoring his blood work, hydrating him? What were you doing about his uric acid? So allopurinol, and then, you know, the package insert talks about using resbiracase. It is essentially the acute leukemia algorithm for resbiracase. It's not anything different than folks would do for acute leukemics. And how do you, again, in this situation where you're really having this massive tumor drop, How aggressively do you hydrate? You mentioned his renal function was kind of compromised. How aggressively do you hydrate? So our inpatient service just use their regular algorithm, but even for people who get it as an outpatient and don't need to be admitted, hydration is really critical for these folks. You know, when we really push them to hydrate, hydrate, hydrate. The other little pearl here is that people should not start these drugs late in the week. They should start them on Monday or Tuesday because you're going to need to do outpatient tumor lysis monitoring on them. That's interesting. So what are you looking for specifically in their blood work? So we're doing comps. We're looking at renal function, but also looking at the calcium and the FOS and the potassium and the magnesium, just making sure that they're okay. If I'm worried about people coming into the first dose dehydrated, I will give them hydration in clinic and you shouldn't be afraid to do that because some people just can't drink that much. And if you're gonna have them in every day to be doing lab work, there's no downside to giving them a liter of fluid and really making sure that they're as wet as they can be within reason, certainly, because this is an older population. So you've got to balance congestive heart failure and other things that you may not want to fluid overload folks. So let's talk about some of the other therapies that were either given or considered for him. So another regimen that this man got, I guess, in 2015, because again, he relapsed 2011, gets some BR, then he gets adelesib R. Mm -hmm. And first of all, did he respond to it? Did the disease respond? So it did. He did respond. He had lots of bulky adenopathy. And again, it was sort of like the picture that we treated, that the counts were not terribly high, but lots of adenopathy. And he did initially respond, but once he developed colitis and he was hospitalized and it was colitis and, you know, he had this GI bleeding issue around that same time. So he was off drug for 
two or three months, and then the disease pretty quickly starts coming back again. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that colitis, because Adalesa, it is an effective drug. It's approved in CLL as well as follicular lymphoma. But it does have this thing that you don't see. I don't know. It's not that common that you see with drugs, some kind of immune. I've heard about this colitis. Yes. What have you observed? What kinds of problems do you see with adalesib? Right. So the adalesib really, you know, of course, there are count issues that you're monitoring for. But there are really two phases to the diarrhea. The first phase is the, you know, after initially starting the drug, And almost all of our drugs can do this. They can cause diarrhea or bowel changes. And that's really garden variety diarrhea. And you manage that the same way that you manage any diarrhea, you know, chemotherapy diarrhea. But then the colitis picture comes six, seven, eight months later. So this is really much later than just starting the drug and getting acclimated to the drug. And it can be severe. The drug needs to be held. Some patients will require steroids to get it under control. It's something that nurses really need to be aware of because a lot of times patients will think, oh, I must have food poisoning or, you know, something else is going on. But no, this is pretty classic when that colitis happens. It's six, seven, eight months after they've started. Anything else about adalesib that you want to comment on? Are you utilizing the drug right now? And, you know, it reminds me a little bit, you know, Hopkins is so well known for all the research on checkpoint inhibitors. Mm-hmm. And, you know, with checkpoint inhibitors, you're always worried about diarrhea. Yes. You know, somebody comes in, it's not like anybody else with diarrhea. If they have Mm -hmm. diarrhea on a checkpoint inhibitor, you're worried about an immune colitis, maybe. Yep. And is that kind of the same approach you take to adalesib? It is, because patients can also develop pneumonitis, and they can develop iritis, right? So they can really develop a lot of the same itises that the checkpoint inhibitor patients develop. Yes. Interesting. So... He also, I see along the way, received the anti-CD20 antibody obinutuzumab. Yes. Similar to rituximab, but not exactly the same. I don't know whether he got it with, a lot of times it's used with chlorambucil, but I don't know how he got it. You know what? I think he just got the obinutuzumab. And I've heard about people using obinutuzumab Mm -hmm. alone. I guess he didn't really benefit, but of course he'd already gotten a bunch of treatments and maybe he already was 17P at that point. But I am curious, because I know you have an interest in the whole issue of monitoring for toxicities. Mm -hmm. I am curious what your experience has been with abinutuzumab, because now not only is it used in CLL, but there's Mm -hmm. a big paper out there. We'll see how people respond to it using it up front in follicular lymphoma. Correct. And And then, right, and folding it in with bendamustine. Right. As well. So right. So really trying to move obinutuzumab more into places that we have typically used, rituximab. And so I think it's a more toxic drug in terms of the cytopenias and the infusion reactions. I think the hardest part about it is we're so used to giving rituximab and we are so used to the schedule and the monitoring. And so the obinutuzumab is a little different. The dosing is different. The schedule is different. And I think it's going to take a while for people to get into a groove. I think it's a little tough because we're so comfortable with rituximab and it works, right? And so displacing our favorite antibody for lymphoma patients is not something that people are just going to do 
just because one paper comes out. And I hate to say that, but, you know, we're all used to it. And we're used to hearing about in these low-grade lymphomas and CLL that some of how you choose therapy is, yes, based on a lot of the biological markers that we can test. But if there are three or four things that are appropriate, you're going to do what your practice is most comfortable. You have a go-to regimen. And for many years, rituximab has been included in our go-to regimen. So I think that as more data comes out, yes, you know, if more positive data comes out about obinutuzumab, we'll see more of a shift. But this is not something that folks are just all of a sudden abandoning their rituximab. No, I mean, you know, I think rituximab almost has an emotional place right. in a lot of people's heart because you think about, yeah. you know, what happened when that drug came along and how it affected so many people. Yeah. But I think also, and I kind of wonder, you know, I've seen this in a lot of researchers, like there's almost a reluctance to believe that something could be better than rituximab. And yet, Abinutuzumab is a different antibody. I mean, it works. It's sort of the same target, but it doesn't do the same thing. And you look at the data, Mm -hmm. and I mean, I don't know. You can debate whether it's really worth it or not. But in any event, it might be up and coming. seems like it is, new trial. But from a nursing point of view, again, the issue of toxicity. So I'm kind of curious because I've heard different things about this. What you've observed, the big issue, as far as I know, with abinutuzumab is infusion reaction. More infusion reactions, and yep. yet I hear that people end up getting through it. You know, they're not less people Absolutely. get treated. So what's the mechanics of how this actually happens? I've also heard that it's mainly just the first infusion, then it's actually easier than right. rituximab. What's your experience? Right. So I find it's like rituximab in that, you know, the first infusion and maybe the second one are the tough ones. And we tend to, if we're really worried about people having infusion reactions, we will aggressively load them with some oral steroids at home the day before and, you know, really making sure we use them sparingly. But certainly with these folks with high white counts and lots of adenopathy, there's really no upside to having them rigoring in your infusion chair. So we really try to pick the patients who could benefit from some upfront steroids to try to decrease those infusion reactions. But then once we do that, I find that it's very similar to rituximab infusion reactions in terms of the severity and certainly how you manage them are identical. So as long as we're talking about rituximab, there's one other thing I want to ask you about that I kind of want to get clear in my mind if I can, which is sub-Q rituximab. Mm-hmm. What's the deal? So I am just starting to wrap my head around sub-Q rituximab. My point of reference to this is alemtuzumab. So, you know, when that was in vogue for patients with CLL, it was revolutionary, the difference in infusion reactions with giving it IV versus giving it sub-Q. You know, and we've seen other drugs go that route as well. I think it's an exciting alternative. But again, I think the jury is going to be out on this because we're also used to giving our IV rituximab. We all have a system for doing it. But I think it's an exciting alternative because for the majority of patients, whatever regimen they're getting, their rituximab time is their longest time in the chair. So if they can reduce that, and even when you get to rapid rituximab infusions and giving it over 90 minutes, when you're talking about giving bendamustine and rituximab, it's still the longer chair time drug. I think it would really help patients, their quality of life, both from an infusion reaction perspective and a time in the chair perspective. So 
It's administered in a clinic, correct? Not by the patient. Correct. It's administered in clinics. And what are the mechanics? How much volume? Where do you inject it? Is there a downside? So it's your typical subcutaneous sites, and although, like many, the abdomen is the preferred site, and really it's just subcutaneous form, and the infusion reaction rate appears to be much lower because it's not an infusion. It's very slowly absorbing subcutaneously. So this is being debated at your center whether to do this? So we're not at this point giving subcutaneous rituximab. But, I mean, is your team motivated to do this or not really? Oh, we would totally be motivated to do this because like every other place who treats oncology patients, we are all so busy. Our chairs are so full all the time that if we can reduce the time that patients are in the chair, not only for the patient, but for our operations perspective. I mean, no one is hurting because of empty chairs by any means. So if we can get people in and out of them quicker, you know, the first revolution with rituximab was the 90 minute. Right. You know, if we could get that down to a subcutaneous across the board, that would be spectacular. Hmm. Interesting. Okay, let's talk about your 67-year-old man with mantle cell who presented in 2004. All right, so he is a guy who is now 67, who was diagnosed with stage four mantle cell in 2004, and he got pretty typical therapy. He got chopper and he at that point was 55. So instead of an auto, he got an aloe. So when you get treated at a transplant center, you sort of up the ante a little bit. So he achieved a CR, a complete remission. He remained in a complete remission for. Uh, about five years. Hold on, hold on. Let's go back a little bit here. Okay. So he presents at the age of 55 with mantle cell, Mm -hmm. gets chemo R, and then an aloe transplant. Yes. So was that at your place? Yes. So at that point, he was very high risk. And we do consider aloes for our high risk mantle cells, the blastoid variants or people who I have a lady now who had CNS involvement. You know, so if folks are high risk, it is still on the table. I don't know. Maybe he would have had the same thing if he got an auto. Well, actually, he has the owl in 2005, and then he recurs in 2009. So he gets four years. He got four years, yeah. Which, you know, I guess you might see that with an auto or even without either one, right? Right. And so today, I'm not sure we would have done that same thing, but back in 2005, we didn't have some of these novel therapies that we have today. You know, and as you see these people who have been diagnosed for a number of years, that's a very common story that we would potentially have managed him differently today. But at least he's here, right? He's here that we can talk about this, which is great. And then he kind of then enters sort of a common grounds of relapse disease. Correct. And he's gotten several therapies, including lenalidomide, rituximab. Let's kind of lay out the infrastructure of how you approach mantle cell, and then we'll talk about how he sort of fit into that. Right now, when people with mantle cell, I guess, present, it seems like one of the things people think a lot about mantle cell is, is the patient younger in a good condition and maybe up for a transplant mm-hmm. versus older. How do you make that determination and what usually happens Another thing I've seen in the upfront setting that's happened, I've seen a lot in the last few years, is the increasing use of rituximab maintenance. And I think at one point he had that. But how do you approach upfront now in the older and younger patient? So, you know, 
CHOP with rituximab is still a mainstay in mantle cell for initial therapy. To me, it used to be really there were no decisions, right? So if patients, an average risk mantle cell patient got CHOP and rituximab, we would let them then observe. And at the point they relapsed, you would be doing salvage and taking them to some sort of transplant. The issue now, which is a great issue to have, is we've got a brutinib that we are really using. I have many patients now who are relapsing after their auto, right? So they got their chopratuximab, they relapsed, they got something else, they got an auto, right? Which at that point was standard management for these patients. And so five or 10 years ago, we would have been talking about reinducing them and getting them to aloe right, as their long-term plan. And so now the whole landscape has changed, and we are putting those people on a brutinib and saying, you know what, we've got this great pill. If it works, this could keep you in remission for a short time. It could keep you in remission for a long time. If you get several years out of this, then maybe we'll have another pill to give you or something else that is less risky, less toxic than taking people to an allo transplant. So these oral drugs have really changed the landscape for us. The thing that is uncomfortable is that, you know, historically, when drugs hit the market, we would have at least 10, 15 years of follow-up data on patients to know, understand long-term toxicity and really know the whole story about a drug. So for these newer drugs that have gotten breakthrough status from the FDA where they sort of have an expedited approval process, you know, and some of them have been approved on phase two data, not even phase three randomized data, we don't have those years of follow-up. So even though we've got these great, exciting new drugs, we always have very frank conversations with patients about the fact that we don't know what the long-term toxicities if these drugs are going to be. But as we learn them, we'll share them. But most patients are really very happy to go on them and not have to receive systemic chemotherapy. So certainly two of the most commonly used drugs are oral, which is, as you mentioned, ibrutinib as well as lenalidomide, and he actually got lenalidomide. Can you talk about the side effect issues that come up with lenalidomide and lenalidomide rituximab, the R-squared regimen that he got and he actually responded to? What are the tolerability issues with lenalidomide in lymphoma patients? Right. So there are a couple things that I always prep patients for. So the first thing is cytopenias. And then the second thing, when patients initially start, they can have a tumor flare where their nodes, and this guy definitely did, he had cervical lymphadenopathy, and I had warned him, you know, this is how this drug works, you can have this flare. His cervical adenopathy essentially doubled, and then really quickly shrank down. So we've got to understand these little nuances to these drugs to be able to have our patients be ready for that, so they're not just completely losing their minds over these things. You know, our typical chemotherapies all worked essentially the same way. Nothing got bigger, nothing got worse before it got better. Yeah, they could have a little tumor pain with the rituximab, but you know, not doubling of lymph nodes. But he was ready for that. He was completely ready, and he messaged me through our medical record system, and I remember this, him saying, hey, it happened. Thanks for letting me know this was going to happen. I'm not worried about this. I'll keep you posted. And, you know... The next time I saw him, it was significantly smaller, his cervical adenopathy, so it pretty quickly flared and then reduced in size. 
Did he have any quality life issues with lenalidomide? Did he feel bad or anything happen with, with the, the lenalidomide? lenalidomide? His counts didn't tolerate the lenalidomide. We had to abandon it because of his counts, even with several dose reductions. Now, he's somebody who came into it very heavily pretreated. So his marrow just did not like the lenalidomide despite several dose reductions. But we did mission accomplished, right? So he got into his adenopathy improved significantly. And we've been monitoring him since that time. So just because you start people on these drugs that are hypothetically being done until toxicity or progression, it doesn't mean that if they stop for toxicity, that they're not going to get really a decent remission out of that. So that's really interesting. How long has he been off therapy now? So he's been off therapy for probably six months now, six, eight months now. So that's really interesting. So you kind of threw him into remission. You had to stop because the counts were low. Mm -hmm. And he's staying in remission off therapy. And he's staying in remission off therapy. That must be awesome for him. It is awesome for him. Yeah, he's a nice guy. He's got a bunch of grandchildren and he's recently retired and he's all over the country visiting his grandchildren and he's another one it's all good he feels well when he has issues it's cardiac because he's also got congestive heart failure so when his cardiac regimen is not right that's what his symptoms are from not the lymphoma huh fascinating so he's got hopefully maybe a brutinib sitting out there in the future potentially also bortezomib and i don't know how often you actually use bortezomib for a mantle cell Do you use it? And what do you tell patients about it? So, you know, we actually use it pretty rarely at this point because of the toxicity and the neuropathy and the cytopenias. I just feel like we have drugs that are less toxic, but it's certainly something that we keep in our back pocket. Interesting. So let's talk a little bit about T-cell lymphoma. Let's hear about your 74-year-old man. Yep. So he is a now 74-year-old. He was diagnosed in 2014 with peripheral T-cell lymphoma not otherwise specified, which is the most common T-cell lymphoma in this country. How did he present? So he presented, he was sick, and this is very typical for these patients. So rapidly progressing abdominal pain. He had a 60-pound weight loss. He had massive splenomegaly when he was finally diagnosed, and he really got his initial workup done because he was hypercalcemic. Wow. So he was really a sick guy. So his workup showed that he had stage four disease and he had bone involvement, which is certainly something that happens with these more aggressive lymphomas. That 60-pound weight loss is really impressive. How much did he weigh and he lost his appetite or what was going on? Was he obstructed? What was going on? He just completely lost his appetite. And that's very common with T-cell lymphomas to see really significant B symptoms. He did not have fevers, but the weight loss was very impressive. And I'm sure it was from the splenomegaly and the disease itself. What was his general condition before that time? What was he doing? So he was a retired police officer, so somebody who was really used to being in control. And it's hard for folks like that when they are reduced to something that they never thought they would be reduced to, losing 60 pounds and not being able to get out of bed. So he had been previously healthy? Yes, So healthy 74-year-old man, all of a sudden just cataclysmically losing weight, a lot of tumor, big spleen. Could you feel the spleen on the physical exam? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It was probably halfway to his pelvis. Wow. Yeah. Hmm. 
it was one of those spleens you could see across the room when someone got on the exam table and lifted up their gown. Yeah. So it sounds like things have been pretty rough since that point. What's been going on? They have been rough. So he started CHOP, which again is not great therapy for T-cell lymphoma, but it's still where we start. And he progressed through therapy, which is never good. You know, it's never good when patients progress while on therapy. So he got switched to GEMOX, which is a gemcitabine-based regimen, and he had a phenomenal response to that. That's really interesting. So he had a complete response. He did. Although he walked right through CHOP. Yeah, we were not expecting that. Wow, interesting. Did he start feeling better? He did. He actually felt better initially on the CHOP. And, you know, patients rarely feel as bad as they do when they're diagnosed because they know what's happening and we're watching them. So even when they start to feel bad again, it's hardly ever like it was in the beginning. But he got Gemox. He got into a complete remission. Now, he was somebody who, you know, when you're primary refractory, you're going the aggressive route. So he earned that, unfortunately. So he underwent a non-myeloablative or reduced intensity transplant from a child, a haploidentical child in late 2014. And he really did well for essentially three years, which is sort of strange that he was so refractory initially and then got three years of remission from the transplant. But he very recently has relapsed. And the second he walked in the exam room, I knew he had ascites and he was talking about not being able, he was in bed like 22 hours a day. And it was really, you know, yes, we worked him up and scanned him and biopsied him and all of those things just to make sure. Because anybody who treats lymphomas, you know that these things, they can switch up, different things can happen. You never make assumptions about what's going on. We talked about treatment options for him. And so for folks who relapse with peripheral T-cell lymphoma on the plate, our options are certainly pralotrexate and then romadepsin and bolinistat, which is the newest drug. And so when we really talked to him about the pros and the cons and clearly talked to him about the fact that we were palliating, right, our curative options were exhausted at this point, you know, short of doing something radical like retransplanting or something. And he's really not interested in that. But when you think about pralotrexate, which is a good drug for T-cell lymphomas, but has a lot of toxicity in terms of mucositis and count issues, we talked about that. We talked about romadepsin. And then we also talked about bolinistat, which is given daily for five days. That's a five-day cycle with also a decent toxicity profile. And so he really made an informed decision that romadepsin was what he wanted to do because they live about two hours away from us. And so to come every day was going to be a hardship. And the response rates are about the same, you know, 25, 30%. And so he really was a very active participant in choosing that therapy. So he's now in his second cycle of romadepsin. He's really tolerating it well. His counts are holding. It's really helpful that he went three years after transplant without needing therapy. So although he is relatively heavily pretreated, he had a little hiatus from chemotherapy. So I'm hoping that we can get enough cycles in him that he can get some sort of remission and, you know, hopefully get some more time. He's a very avid country music fan. 
and goes to Nashville several times a year to the Grand Old Opry. So, you know, I'm telling him, make your plans. We're going to do our best to keep you, you know, as healthy as we can and as functional as we can. But no promises. But it's not that there's no hope. It's just that now we're working for time and not cure. So he's planning his next Grand Old Opry trip, and hopefully he gets there. What kinds of toxicity tolerability issues do you see with Romadeps? And I hear people often talking about starting it first because they think it's better tolerated. But when you do see problems, or how often do you see problems? What kinds of problems and any problems this man had? So it's usually count issues, which he's not gotten enough to have. And then patients can have little bits of nausea. And what he was doing was he just decided to take an ondansetron every day, just one in the morning, and he's had no nausea. I've talked to him about seeing if he could play with that a little bit if he wants. If he just wants to take one a day, I have no issue with that either. So he certainly has been around the block in terms of chemotherapy and side effects and managing those side effects. And so really, he's had nothing. He's had no issues. So, wow, this has really been a roller coaster ride for him. Wow, mm-hmm. he, he starts out in this desperate situation, doesn't respond to treatment, then he responds to Gemox mm-hmm. and he gets the aloe. He does really well. Maybe he was thinking he was cured at that point. You know what? We were hoping he was cured at that point because usually with T-cell lymphomas, they relapse pretty quickly if they're going to after transplant. But, you know, he and his wife are very practical people, and they're very thankful that they got those three years of remission, and he felt well and really was business as usual. But I guess at this point, it's kind of more of a palliative mode. Yes, we're definitely in palliative mode at this point. When you look back at him What do you think it is that's helped him deal with all these things of going up and down like this? Well, you know, I think that for him, he understood how ominous it was when he did not respond to the CHOP. And so when he responded to Gemox, he just felt like he was getting a second chance. And really, these were really incredible people in that they really made the most of every day between like he sort of had his life threatening or life, you know, he got it that this was really serious. And they have enjoyed every day. They do a lot of traveling. (laughs) They have family in Florida. They're always going somewhere. They really have made the most of the time that he's gotten, even though it has been a roller coaster. So final question, you know, we can't go through an interview without me asking you about being an oncology in general and an oncology nurse. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this man really, I think, you know, hearing this story, I've got to think that it must affect you and the way you look at your life. You have this patient and his his wife getting a new lease on life. Does that make you look at your life differently? Oh, absolutely. It absolutely does. You know, anybody who works in oncology, you don't sweat the small stuff. You can't get upset about every little thing that happens all day long. You've got to focus on the big picture. It really does make you think about life completely differently. And you appreciate the little things, and then you don't worry about the little things either. (laughs) Yeah. It is an emotional roller coaster. And then, you know, to have people like this who you followed for many years, and they're doing great, and then they're not doing great. And, you know, honestly, when he relapsed, I was seeing him all the time. And they both said, like, when they left the last time I saw them, they said, we're so glad it was you who told us all this. You know, you really 
You know, and I think as a nurse practitioner, you figure out what makes people tick in a way that is not necessarily how physicians are trained. I don't know. I don't know if that's stereotypical or what it is. But, you know, I just feel like coming from a nursing background, you can really connect with people in a way that comes very naturally. You don't even know you're doing it. 